Father, thank you that you came as our peace. Thank you for your love and your presence in our life. Thank you for your tender faithfulness to us. God, your goodness to us is so abundant. And we are grateful for this gathering of people together this morning, Father, as we can learn more about who you are and how much you love us. In your precious name, amen. Good morning. I'm Lisa Stonehouse, and I am so glad to be here with you this morning. Um, and the sun is shining. I feel like it's been a few days, and that just does something inside of you, doesn't it? One of the things that makes Christmas so memorable, such a special time of year, is the music. Where do you want me to? Do you hear? Is it humming? <laughs> Just yell, <laughs> like the pastors of old. Um, so the same songs, year after year, they get stuck in our head, and we often recite the words without even thinking about it. So we're in our third week of the series, Songs of Christmas. Each week, we are taking a classic Christmas carol and using it to delve into the scriptural reference or the text that inspired that song. We kicked the series off with talking about the shepherds through the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that God saw the worth and the value in those lowly, dirty shepherds, and he chose them to be the first people to hear of the birth of Jesus. People who were at the bottom of society, who felt like there was no hope, he came for them. And last week, Brent talked about the Magi and how God saw the worth and the value in the people who didn't know him. People who were seeking the sky for answers and for purpose. Those men were rich and famous, wealthy and known. And maybe they didn't necessarily feel a need or a hope for something more. And he came for them. Brent also touched on King Herod, too. And that is who we're going to spend a lot of our time today talking about. Through the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. So if we begin with the context surrounding the song, it originated in 1868 as a poem written for the Sunday school class of the Church of the Holy Trinity in Philadelphia, with the words written by Philip Brooks, and the music was by the church organist, another throwback to the old churches, um, whose name was Louis Redner. And those songs, the song resonated with a theme of stillness and peace in the aftermath of the Civil War. Brooks found his inspiration for this hymn during his year abroad in 1865 um, in Europe and then in Israel. While he was traveling, he wrote to the children of his parish about visiting Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. And he was reminded of the hymn singing in his congregation at home. But it wasn't until three years later that he actually reflected on his experience by writing the words to the song for his Sunday school students. With the first stanza beginning, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. 
The birth scene in Bethlehem has shaped an endless amount of nativity scenes. There's wooden ones, white ones, brightly colored, huge ones in, in yards, little ones. On Facebook Marketplace the other day, there was a gold wax one from the 70s. That was pretty funny. But I absolutely love a nativity scene. It's filled with beauty and wonder. It evokes nostalgia. It creates a warmth and a sense of awe and wonder inside of you, drawing you into that holy moment. And all of that is so meaningful and needed in our broken world, which so quickly forgets the why or the heart behind Christmas. But, as Brent likes to remind us, when we give our attention to the actual historical context of the birth of Jesus in the little village of Bethlehem, we might reconsider a little bit what we call traditional, which I think calls for some fun Christmas trivia. So if we throw up the first slide, which animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? A, cow, sheep, goats, B, Cows, donkeys, goats. C, sheep and goats only. Miscellaneous barn animals, or it doesn't say. Does anybody want to have an answer? It doesn't say. But every nativity I've ever seen has a cow, one sheep, and one donkey. And if you get like a bigger nativity, it has a camel. How did Mary and Joseph get from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Donkey? Camel, they both walked, Joseph walked, and Mary rode a donkey, or it doesn't say. It doesn't say. How many angels spoke to the shepherds? One, three, one thousand, ten thousand, or it doesn't say. It doesn't say. We're finding a theme here, right? How many wise men came to Jesus? Three, six, nine, twelve, it doesn't say. I think because of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, that's where we get number three from. But What did the angels say to the shepherds? Wake up, a baby is born. Mary is wondering where you are. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people or none of the above. See, I tricked you guys. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So, as our silly trivia revealed, Brent is right. Much of the nativity scene, I know, that's really hard to say. <laughs> is, so much of the nativity scene, as we display it, isn't really accurate. But it is still my very favorite Christmas decoration. So we're going to start with the biblical text today in Luke, and then we're going to delve into the historical context surrounding Jesus' birth in that little town of Bethlehem. So we'll talk about Bethlehem, and we'll talk about King Herod, and we'll tie it together. Luke 2, 1 through 4. I hear my dad's voice because every Christmas when we get together as a family, he sits Indian style, and he's always barefoot, and he has had the same Adidas pants 
for as long as I can remember, and I just picture him sitting there. So when I hear these words, that is what is in my head. I took a picture slyly one Christmas, and then the next Christmas I did again, and you literally would not know that a whole year had passed in between. It's so dear. So Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So the biblical account of the nativity tells us that Jesus was born during the time that the people were ordered to participate in Caesar Augustus's sentence, um, census. And historians have branded, branded Caesar Augustus as the greatest Roman emperor of all time. His most notable act, the one that left a mark on history, was his census plan, which was how Mary and Joseph traveled and found themselves so far from home. They were 80 miles from home. And we, like we just learned, we don't know if it was a donkey or, or, or what, but it was 80 miles, there were no cars, and they're traveling, and Mary was nine months pregnant. That's so disruptive and so disturbing to their life, but to all the lives of the people that were required to move, to go to their town, to, to go visit it. So Roman law required people who lived in Judea and the surrounding area to return to their ancestral home for this census registration. And since Joseph belonged to the house in the line of David, Bethlehem was his designated census hub. This census would prove successful in Augustus's overall plan to collect taxes and to transform Rome from a brick-and-mortar city to a beautiful marble city that we remember it as. Little Bethlehem is located in the hill country just outside Jerusalem. It has a mild climate, plentiful rainfall, and it ensures that the town's fields and orchards and vineyards thrive into consistently bountiful harvest. The fertile land that they have there is probably why the area was called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And then, in his divine sovereignty, God appointed Bethlehem as the birthplace of his son, who would declare, coming from this town, house of bread, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So instead of choosing the holy city of Jerusalem as Jesus, the king of kings' birthplace, God selected a town that was very little. The humble birthplace of Jesus demonstrates this intimacy that God has with us. John Piper said, God chose something small, quiet, out of the way, and did something there that changes the course of history, of eternity. 
And 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah prophesied that Bethlehem would be the Messiah's birthplace. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. God used the Roman Empire's greedy taxation purposes to draw Mary and Joseph to the appointed place of Jesus' birth in the appointed time. The history of Bethlehem is so rich. During Jacob's long journey back to his homeland, his beloved wife Rachel dies while giving birth to their second son Benjamin. Instead of burying Rachel there, Jacob chose to lay his his wife right outside Bethlehem. And today, Rachel's tomb still stands near the entrance to Bethlehem and is considered a holy site to the Jewish people. Later in the Old Testament, after the death of her her husband and sons, a woman named Naomi returned to Bethlehem, the home of her ancestors. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, went with her. Arriving in Bethlehem, Naomi sends Ruth to work in the field of a wealthy relative named Boaz. He becomes their kinsman redeemer. He marries Ruth, and they have a son named Obed, who was the grandfather of King David, the lineage of Jesus. Scripture tells us that the prophet Samuel went to Bethlehem in search of a new king, similar to the Magi would years later. At God's direction, Samuel found and anointed a young shepherd boy named David. And the prophets foretold that another king would rule and reign forever from the line of David. And after 400 years of waiting, God held true to his promise and sent his son Jesus, the king of kings, to be born in the same town as his servant David. And because the fields surrounding Bethlehem were just a short distance from the temple, they were designated as pastures for raising the sacrificial lambs that the shepherds watched over. So the tower of the flock, generations of shepherds tended these lambs. Before David was king, he raised sheep and cared for sheep in the same Bethlehem pastures that were likely the same home to the shepherds from Luke 2. So is it any wonder that God chose Bethlehem as the birthplace of Jesus, who is our Savior? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The little town of Bethlehem, rich with meaning and tradition and history. The next passage that we're going to read might sound familiar because Brent read it last week. When our attention, though, was directed toward the Magi and a perspective on their travels and how they gave honor to Jesus, the one born king of the Jews, who would then become known as King of Kings. And I invite you to listen again through the lens of King Herod. Matthew 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? 
We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So we're going to start with a bunch of historical context, a little history session about King Herod. So in 63 BC, General Pompey led Rome to conquer most of Israel, destroying the temple in Jerusalem that the people held so dear in that process. After which, Rome needed someone to rule and oversee Israel. So Rome put a guy named Antipater in charge, and Antipater put his son Herod to act as sheriff of the Galilee region. In the meantime, Julius Caesar was leading and organizing Rome until his assassination in 44 BC. After his assassination, Rome fell into a massive 13-year civil war. And throughout that war, the Roman Empire was divided into three parts. One third was led by General Mark Antony, one by a Roman statesman named Marcus Lepidus, and one by Julius Caesar's adopted nephew, Octavian. Octavian and Antony would incrementally drain Lupidius of his authority. And then things quickly grew tense between Octavian and Antony, especially when Antony began a love affair with Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt, because Egypt was Rome's biggest threat. So while Octavian's power increased, and he would take the name Caesar Augustus, which means divine Caesar, and then with the growing threat of the powerful empire creating issues in the eastern Mediterranean, the Roman Senate, along with Caesar Augustus and Antony, made Herod king of the Jews. And the celebratory scene is quite famous, with first century his historian Josephus recording, Josephus recording. The meeting was dissolved, and Antony and Caesar Augustus left the Senate house with Herod between them, preceded by the consuls and other officials, as they went to offer sacrifice and to lay up the decree in the capital. On this first day of his reign, Herod was given a banquet by Antony. Thus did Herod take over power of Rome. So then to try and impress 
Caesar Augustus, Antony married Caesar's sister, Octavia, while also continuing his love affair with Cleopatra. Probably not a good idea. Antony eventually marries Cleopatra, and Antony and Augustus go to war in 31 BC. Caesar Augustus defeats Antony, leading to Antony and Cleopatra dramatically performing a Romeo and Juliet double suicide. So during all of this, Herod, who had been loyal to Mark Antony, threw himself before Caesar Augustus in the aftermath of his victory, declaring his allegiance to Augustus. And then in 27 BC, Caesar Augustus becomes the singular ruler of Rome, becoming the first and probably most successful Roman emperor. Immediately upon his kingship, Herod got to work on his two main responsibilities. The first he enacted with his mantra, law and order, where he punished, imprisoned, or killed anyone who dared oppose him or Caesar. The second main responsibility was collecting taxes. So prior to this, the Jewish people paid a temple tax, but then they imposed a second tribute to be paid by the peasants. And then when Herod imposed his kingship, not only did he not remove these unfair taxes, he added a third. Scholars say that the common Israelite of that time during the reign of Herod paid upwards of 90% of their income in taxes. Josephus wrote extensively about this. Since Herod was involved in expenses greater than his means, he was compelled to be harsh toward his subjects. For a great number of things that he spent money on as gifts caused him to be the source of harm to those that he took money from, that he took his revenues. He had reduced the entire people to helpless poverty. Now Herod was very sly, so he maneuvered himself to try to win over the Jewish people a little bit with his biggest and most important project, rebuilding their temple in Jerusalem, using their money, of course. His efforts led to the temple being the largest, the most magnificent temple in the ancient world. He also built several other temples throughout Israel to honor the so-called divine Augustus, Caesar Augustus. But the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem was a marvel, and it displayed the work of a brilliant mind. Again, Josephus writes about the rebuild. In the 15th year of his reign, Herod restored the temple, and by building new foundation walls, he enlarged the surrounding area to double its former extent. The expenditure devoted to this work was incalculable. Its magnificence never surpassed. He restored at a lavish cost in a style no way inferior to that of a palace and called it Antonia in honor of Antony. And I have a couple pictures of that. So here is this palace that is just magnificent and large. Herod would not tolerate any sort of dissent. He even had the audacity to place a giant golden eagle, which was one of the Roman Empire's main emblems, over the great gate of the temple, which was doubtably, undoubtedly a symbol of Roman domination 
as well as a violation of the commandment for no graven images. This was a way for Herod to remind the Jewish people of who it is that allowed him not only to worship, but to really even exist. Both Herod and Rome had no problem knitting together national and military pride with religious fervor. Herod was also offensive in his royal ideology, claiming that he was king by the will of God, that he should be honored for bringing the long-awaited peace and prosperity to the nation, which none of this sounds peaceful or prosperous for the people. Some relational information, his brother-in-law, who had become more popular than Herod, had an unfortunate drowning accident in a pool that archaeologists have since verified to be very, very shallow. He falsely accused one of his wives of adultery. He put her on trial and had her strangled to death. He later named a tower in his palace after her honor. He executed two of his sons that were also falsely accused of plotting against him. Five days before he died, he executed a third son. Herod so craved to be honored and revered that on his deathbed, he arrested a number of beloved nobles and he set their execution for the day that he died. Thinking that if beloved people were executed, he would ensure that there would be mourning and not celebration on the day of his death. But when he died, the nobles were released and the people celebrated. Josephus also records that of Herod's 37-year reign, 34 of those years were spent enslaving, punishing, and killing anyone who would not bow down to him. He was obscenely wealthy by way of his vicious taxes, and his wealth is still on display today by all that he had constructed throughout Israel. There is no denying that Herod was brilliant. And deservedly so, though, his genius is often overshadowed by his ruthless violence to those on the underside of his power. So I have three pictures of, of some things that he built. Here's a, he has, the first one is a palace. Look at that. It's just beautiful. Another palace. That would be quite the view to wake up to, wouldn't it? And then um, the aqueducts that he built or had built. All of these things, they are still standing today. The Herodium was about five miles from Jerusalem and about three miles from the village of Bethlehem. It was constructed to celebrate his defeat. Herod built it so that the four-towered fortress stood higher than the temple in Jerusalem. If you were Herod, you would want to send a message about how powerful and wealthy and important you are. So you can't just build a palace, you have to make it spectacular. And you build it so as to stand over all of the surrounding towns and villages. So here's a couple pictures of that. Herod had dirt, you can see the mountain, he had dirt moved in order to construct a mountain. And then he had his fortress built on top of that mountain. The four towers on the fortress each stood seven stories high. And this is a really cool thing I learned. Many scholars believe that this is the image that Jesus is playing with 
when he says to his disciples in Matthew 17, Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. A way of Jesus saying, with just a little trust, you can do more than Herod and his money. And then the last picture here is taken from near the top of the Herodium. My brother Jordan took that last fall. And that gives us a fantastic visual of Herod's intent to have his empire literally cast a shadow over Israel. Herod the Great, what a guy. So this is the world that Jesus was born into. A world that was filled with unrest. A world where the peace was disturbed. A world and very specifically, the little town of Bethlehem, which literally lived in the shadow of King Herod. So let's close the history book and step back into our original text. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, when we read that Herod is disturbed, in the context of what we all just talked about, explains why all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him, right? A disturbed Herod would leave those underneath him shivering in fear and dread for how he might snap and do who knows what. So if we take a look at what is underneath the word disturbed, it means to agitate, to cause one inward commotion, to take away calmness of mind, to stir up, to strike one's spirit with fear and dread which sounds like a perfect description of Herod. When we read that the king is going to be born in Bethlehem, we tend to find it cozy and wonderful and peaceful, good news of great joy. But those words from the Magi evoke something very different in Herod. What does Herod know or at least learn in the process of this story? So Herod asks the priests and the teachers of the law where this ruler of Israel is to be born. And they go on to quote the prophet Micah in saying that Jesus will come from Bethlehem and will be in the line of David. And this is where it comes into play that Herod is an Edomite, which goes all the way back to Esau, son of Isaac and brother of Jacob. Jacob receives his father's blessing and later receives a new name, Israel. As part of Jacob's blessing, Esau's ancestors will bow down to Jacob's ancestors. Esau's ancestors are known as the Edomites. Jacob's lineage leads right to Jesus. So when Herod is told of the origins and the ancestry of the coming Christ, which weaves from Abraham to Jacob right through King David, then, 
I think disturbed is a mild way to put it. Herod knows that the one born in Bethlehem will lead to his end. This ancient genealogy is like a picture in an Instagram post. It's what lures the audience in and asks them to ask the larger story behind the picture. For a Jewish writer like Matthew, a genealogy would be the obvious starting point to telling the story of the birth of Jesus because it would be the most common way to draw awareness to the depth of importance of the pedigree of the person highlighted, which here is Jesus. From the very beginning, Jesus is attached to the great King David and the patriarch of the Hebrew people, Abraham. The King David part is huge because the Hebrew scriptures highlight the coming of the Christ, the one to take up the rule and the reign, who would be from the direct line of David. But at that time, remember, somebody already held the title of the king of the Jews, Herod. But then Herod was told that this newly born child holds the proper rightful lineage. Josephus also records that Herod previously had all of the official registries destroyed. So no one could prove to have a pure pedigree than he did. And this is why the genealogies of the Bible are so important. We tend to just see a bunch of unpronounceable names and skip them, which is totally understandable. But yet, Matthew had just announced that the one the world had been waiting and longing for and thirsting and pleading and praying for had finally arrived in the flesh. And he is attached to a much larger story, laced with messy characters, much like you and I. Herod was wealthy and powerful, renowned, ruthless, and self-serving, who was himself disturbed in the inner workings of his heart and his mind. Nothing in Herod was at peace or at rest. And Jesus was born in that little town of Bethlehem, under the very shadow of Herod's temple, the very shadow of this world of unrest. Jesus was born poor, hidden, humble, and he came to be our peace and our rest. When we understand the context of this story, we find two different tales being told. And the narrative that is most commonly believed and trusted to be more powerful right up to today often isn't the story that Jesus chooses to live by. We see and hear the way of Herod all around us, the way of paranoia, the way of unkindness, the way of, of assuming the worst in others, the way of silencing a voice that we disagree with. And none of these things invite us into the rest and the peace that Jesus offers us. So if we use the frame of that scriptural text to pose a question to our hearts today, what is disturbed in you during this Christmas season? If we take the tension from today, we begin to see how we live 
how we may personally proclaim Jesus as king, but we wrestle with the principles of Herod's kingdom. A kingdom where we grapple with wanting the power and control over our lives, where we want to fix things, where we want to hold on to things, a place where we struggle with the desire to be Lord over our lives. I can find that that threat wrestling and surfacing in my own life, a desire for Jesus to be Lord over it, but feeling the pull of the principles of wanting to control like Herod did. The Christmas story brings us into direct confrontation with the Herods in our world today, including the one that lurks within us. The one where we can feel disturbed so often rather than living with a heart at rest or at peace. The place that Jesus came to bring us, the place that he invites us into, May Christmas remind us to not get lost in this temporary power of Herod, which can be found all around us. But instead, may we be people who live from the place of eternal peace and eternal rest that only Jesus brings and can only be found in him. So when we sing the lyrics, the hopes and the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, that is what's lingering in the air, the humble, peaceful power of Jesus who comes to all people in the Christmas story. He came to be our peace. He came to be our rest. Things may be disturbed around us, absolutely. We may have to fight really hard to hold on to that peace. We may have to determinedly dig really, really deep to choose peace in all of our disturbed feelings. The feelings of being shaken or agitation, dread or even fear. Because life is hard and it's messy and it's pain-filled and peace isn't always the anthem that's resounding in our souls. But he brought us peace that passes understanding. And he invites us to that peace that can only, only be found in him. The Bible says in Ephesians that he himself, meaning Jesus, is our peace. In John we read, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation or trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We also read in John, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let it be afraid. In Isaiah, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts you. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. The hopes and fears of all the years. We all have things that we long for. 
We all have things that when we think of them bring us fear. That's part of being human. It's part of being a person. But as part of taking our next steps in faith, we take the following to heart. Are met in thee tonight. Jesus meets us where we are. Whether we are filled with peace or whether we are filled with fear or dread, he sees us and he meets us. When we feel fear trying to vie for our emotions, our thoughts or our feelings, it's important. It matters so much to remind ourselves that he is with us. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He meets us in those places. When we are celebrating or rejoicing over something good or wonderful in our life, when a hope that we held dear is met, when peace is filling our souls, it's important, it's crucial to remind ourselves that he is with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He meets us in all of those places. When the angels gloriously proclaimed Jesus' birth from the heavens, they sang, peace to men on earth. We desperately need that peace and hope and the calming of our fears that Jesus brings. It's important. It matters to remind ourselves that he is with us. He's Emmanuel, meeting our hopes, meeting our fears, and bringing us into a deep and lasting peace that is only found in him. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask you for that peace. God, whether life is easy or if there is pain and fear, Lord, we know and we declare that you are with us because your word says you are. Lord, I pray that peace over all of us in this room, Father, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, Lord. Let us walk forth in your peace, Father, because you care for us and you are with us. In your precious name, amen. We get to take communion together this morning. Communion is an invitation from Jesus to remember him, to feel his peace, to taste his goodness, and to nourish our very souls at this table. Today, we remember the God who is with us, who engages with us, and who is our peace. The Father who gave us his Son so that we could be healed and find our way back to him. We remember Jesus, that he came into this world asking us to trust him. And when we do, we will be unshakable, deeply at peace. When we take the Lord's Supper, we recognize both the promise of a new life in heaven with him at the end of our story, but also a renewal that is taking place here in us right now. 
we are invited to come and gather around this table because we are all part of the same family. We offer our brokenness to him together today, knowing that true peace and healing is possible through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for us and through his resurrection. In a moment, you may come up and receive the bread and the juice. You can take it and return to your seat. If you don't feel comfortable doing that, that's okay too. You can stay in your seat and process maybe something that you heard today. In Luke 22, Jesus gathered his very best friends and he said to them, I have been so eager to eat this meal with you. He loved them so much. He knew what was about to happen, yet he was delighted to have this meal with them. Jesus knows us. He knows every part of who we are. He's eager to invite us to this same table. Jesus stopped at nothing. He gave his life so we could be healed. We come to this table to remember him, what he did for us with deep gratefulness. Because no matter what, in spite of everything, of who we are and who we are not, he loves us so deeply. There's nothing we can do to make him love us more. And there's nothing we can do to make him love us less. He came to give us peace. He came to give us fullness of joy. He came so we could have life to the full. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, gave thanks. He took bread and he broke it. And he shared it with them, saying, This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he said, This is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. Whenever you do this, remember me. Come, for all has been made ready.